Thank you, brother. Thanks for leading us. Thanks for those that serve with you and lead us. Such a privilege we have um, to be able to worship in the way that God allows us to worship. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I hope that you will open it, turn it on, and that you will turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. A couple weeks ago, we were in the first part of this chapter. We took a break last week um, for the Mother's Day holiday. And this morning, we are going to um, continue in Exodus chapter 14. We are still in the story, if you will, the big story that is so often told in the Sunday school classes, vacation Bible schools, etc., the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And so we've been in the book of Exodus looking about how God sets apart his people, how he sets us apart, and what that looks like to be set apart as God's people. So the last time we were here in the book of Exodus, if you remember, the uh, people had left the uh, captivity, the bondage of Egypt. God is leading them through the wilderness. They get all the way, as they're heading eastward, they get all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. And God says, all right, I want you to stop and I want you to camp there. Then in the meantime, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians back in Egypt come to, their, come to the consensus that we made a mistake. We shouldn't have let the people of Israel go. We will go back and we will recover them. We will bring them back and put them back in bondage. So you have the people of Israel and they're up camped against the Red Sea, a kind of little beachfront camp out, if you will. And then all of a sudden, off in the distance, here they see Pharaoh. They see the chariots. They see the army. They see everybody coming. And then they panic. And the last time we were in the book of Exodus, we talked about how often we worry and anxiety, how it can grip us and how it can control us. And so last time in the first few verses of chapter 14, it tells us in verse 10 all the way down through verse 14, the people panicked. The people were fearful. The people were wrecked with worry and anxiety. And Moses tells them, calm down. God's got this. We looked at several different ideas that Moses told the people out of Exodus 14, 14 a couple of weeks ago about how we should evaluate the fear. We should not run when we face those times of worry and anxiety and especially look up. Stop looking at all the problems and start looking up at the hope and the solution from God. The problem with the story, though, is, is we are still at the Red Sea. If you follow the narrative here in Exodus 14, when we ended last time in verse 14, the people are still, they got their backs up to the Red Sea. They have Pharaoh and all of his army are still on the march towards them, and they are still in a state of disarray. They are still in a state of panic. And when we left last time, we talked about how that can be natural, and that is often the case, but it is how we respond that dictates our response and our faith in God. So as we pick it back up here in Exodus 14, the people are still in, in my vernacular, the way that I think about it, they are still in a bind. They are still in trouble. They are still fretting. They are still worried. They are still all upset because here comes Pharaoh. And Moses can say all he wants about, oh, don't be fearful, don't be afraid, trust in God. And many times we will say that the experience of our life is, is preacher, that is easier said than done. So we come in here in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 15, and we turn the corner, if you will, in the story about the crossing of the Red Sea. 
And what I hope that you will see with me this morning is that so many times what is true here in the story is true about us today. So many times we see a problem, but God sees an opportunity. We see a problem and God sees an opportunity. I put this there at the back of the bulletin, those notes, if you want to reference those. So many times when we see a problem, God sees an opportunity. And at the base of what God is going to do in the story and in the passage this morning is God is going to show us his glory. Now you see this in chapter 14 and in verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 4, God makes this statement. God says, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. In chapter 14 and verse 17, God says the same thing. I will get glory over Pharaoh. At the last part of verse 18, he says, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. So at the heart of what is going on in this passage is God is saying, I want to put you in a situation and I want a circumstance to come about that everybody is going to say the only person that gets credit, the only person that can take any kind of fame or any kind of recognition is God. It's called the glory of God. I was talking with, this morning with Adam about how to try to communicate glory. And you can look up a definition of glory, and glory would mean things like great praise or honor or splendor or the magnificence of God or the admiration of God or the, uh, the fame of God. And I asked Adam this morning, I said, Adam, do they still use the word dope in some of you young people's vernacular? You know, because once upon a time, maybe, maybe Caleb and I can relate to this, we talk about something, and if something was cool, if something was hip, if something was awesome, if something was rad, whatever the case, we would say, that is dope. And Adam said, no, no, I, I don't think they use that anymore. And I said, well, well Adam, what do, what, what, what do you think they use? I mean, you're more tuned into youth ministry. What, what is it? And he said, they use the word sick. Now, that's kind of weird to me that you would say about something that was cool that is sick because sick is supposed to be bad and not good. And yet now we're using things that are bad to talk about what is good and what is good is talking about something that is bad. But the idea is that when we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about how awesome God is, how wonderful God is, how majestic God is, how dope God is, how sick God is, how awesome, how Whatever adjective you want to talk about, that is what God does. God shows us that I do not fit in a box, that I do not fit in a description, and I am more than, better than, bigger than anything you can imagine. So here in this passage, God is not only going to show his glory to the Egyptians, God is also going to show his glory to the Israelites. And so whichever Whichever side of the coin you are on this morning, God's glory is still on display. And what I want to do this morning here in this text, we're going to look at verse 15 all the way down through verse 31. And I want you to see with me ways that we see God's glory in the text. And then hopefully we can make the connection together about then how do we see God's glory in our daily lives. Because whether you and I realize it or not, God's glory is always on display. And whether you and I are intentional about it or not, we have an opportunity to show people God's glory every single day. And one of the things that often comes up is Satan and this world will constantly get you and I distracted. He will get us chasing in other ways. He will get us so preoccupied with our lives and ourselves that we only are showing people us and we're not showing people God. And we've got to be careful. 
we got to be careful about recognizing our situations and our circumstances have an opportunity. When we see a problem, there is an opportunity that God is giving us not to show people our glory, but to show people God's glory. So notice in the text, we're going to read verse 15 down through verse 31, just so we have the sake of the context of where we're at. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at these ways that God shows us his glory. So if you remember verse 14, we left it off there at the back of the Red Sea. They are pinned against the Red Sea. Here is Pharaoh and the Egyptians and they are on the march. It's like they're uh, trapped, if you will. And the people of Israel are going, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Moses says, this is verse 13. I'm going to back up for the sake of context. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So Moses looks at the people and says, Hush! God's got this. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Now, sometimes, you know, the way we read it and the inflection we give it, sometimes we can change the meaning of it, we can change the emphasis of it. But can you just imagine God looking down at Moses and saying, why are you coming and sniffling to me? That hurt? I'll give you something that'll hurt. But he goes on there, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Well, let's just see if we can understand this context, if you will, a little bit, Moses. Moses is sitting there. He's got the Egyptians behind him. He's got nothing but water in front of him. And God says, stop whining and go forward. And Moses is like, you ever feel like that? God says to take a step and you're like, I don't see a place to step. God says to be obedient and you're like, well, I, I, I don't know what this looks like. God says, say something, you're like, I have nothing to say. You sometimes feel like you're in a position in life that God is calling you to do something and you have no idea how to do it. Maybe that's right where God wants you to be. Verse 16, God is still speaking. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And a pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and, and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21. And then, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove, back the, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left, and the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire, and of cloud looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. 
the water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen all of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. Here in the text, short story, God says, Moses, this is my plan. Moses follows the plan. The people follow the plan. Pharaoh and his army follows the plan, and God gets the glory. But how do we see the glory of God on display in ways that you and I can relate to today? The first one I want you to see with me is in his direction. And when I say his, I put the capital there because we're talking about in God's direction. If you look back up there in verse 15, God looks at Moses and says, Stop whining to me. Tell the people to move forward. And Moses is sitting there going, and where are we to go? And he says, stretch out your hands, and all of this water that you see in front of you will divide. It will separate. Now, he's not talking about getting a sump pump and draining it out. He's not talking about building a dam and stopping it. He is saying, take your staff. And I, I always think about Charleston Heston, and I always think about the movie Ten Commandments and the way that he gets up there, and he does that. But he says, when you stretch out your hand, the waters will divide. I think it's interesting it, when you think about this is that God had an answer before they ever had a problem. God already knew what he was going to do with the people even before the people knew that they needed God to do something. How do I know this? Well, God had already told them, God had already told them, this is what I want you to do. In chapter 13, it says, God tells them, I want you to turn from going this direction, and I want you to come back over here, and I want you to camp. I want you to come back over here, and I want you to camp with your back against the Red Sea. Why? Because God already knew that Pharaoh was going to pursue. He already knew that the people were already going to be in a position that fret and worry was going to come. And God knew he had an answer before they ever had a problem. Why is that a relationship to you and I today? Because I want you to know, friend, brothers, or sisters, there is not a single thing that is coming into your life that God doesn't already have a solution for. Nothing. There is nothing that is going to come into your life that God doesn't have a solution for. I'm not saying that you're going to like the solution. I'm not saying the solution is going to be easy. I'm not saying the solution is going to be comfortable. But what I can tell you is that God has an answer even before we know we have a problem. So God gives them direction. And God says, Moses, you're going to stretch out your hand. The water is going to part and the people are going to go through the sea. Now let's just think about this for a second. So you're one of the Hebrews, you're one of the Israelites, and you're camped out, and you see Pharaoh coming, <laughs> and you're all playing Jerry Clower about here they come, here they come, and you see Moses, he goes up on a high point, and he looks out over the water, and Moses does this, and all of a sudden the water parts, and then Moses looks at you and says, all right, buddy, take off. I'd like to know. Maybe you don't think about this kind of stuff. I just kind of wonder. The first person in, 
what was it like? <laughs> I mean, have you ever thought about that? The first person in, there's some cartoons that I've seen before where the people of Israel are crossing through the Red Sea and the wall is on, their le- on your left and the wall is on your right and as they're going through, there's a wall and they see fishes and, and the fish are swimming around inside the wall. I just kind of wonder what it's like whenever that first step, whoever that first person is that says, you know what, God has divided it and God will stay dividing. And if Moses says go through it, I'm going to go through it. Sometimes, sometimes his direction then requires our faith. Or put that in your notes, sometimes our faith is required. You see, God will give us direction and God will say, this is the direction I want you to go and this is what I want you to do. But at some point, we have to have faith in God enough to do what God is telling us to do. Why? Because many times, the things that God is telling us to do, do not make sense. They do not make sense. Go talk to that person about Jesus. Well, I don't want to. They don't want to talk to me about Jesus. They want to talk to me about baseball. Quit your job and go do something that God God wants you to do. Well, I don't want to do that. A lot of times what God tells us to do doesn't make sense and that faith is required. So when those people, even when the water divided, even when they looked out, they're like, well, that looks like some dry ground. Oh, that looks like wide enough we could walk through there. Oh, man. They still have to practice faith. And I think sometimes in our humanity, we say, God, give me direction. God, give me direction. But, oh, God, don't make it where I have to practice faith. How many times has God given us direction? But we weren't faithful enough to follow his direction. Oh, God has told us, this is what I want you to do. This is the way that I want you to go. And then you and I sit back and go, you know what? I don't trust you enough. I don't have enough faith. I am not willing to follow. And then we sit back and go, oh, God, why haven't you given me direction? Why haven't you given me direction? God's saying, hey, I have. So here in this text, Verse 15, verse 16, then you get down to verse 21. You got Moses and he stretches out his hands. And you could just imagine, here the people go. The Bible tells us in, previous, in a previous passage here in Exodus, there are over 600,000 Israelites. Over 600,000 and they got their goods and they got their animals and they have their belongings. They have everything. And so all of a sudden, here they go. The waters open up. The ground is dry. And here they take off. And they're just going and they're going and they're going. And this is something that I think so many times we forget. Where were they going? They didn't know. God had part of the Red Sea, but they had never been on the other side. They didn't know what was over there. All they knew was God said, I'm going to part, and I want you to go forward. And they might be saying, well, what's over there? Does it matter? God said, be over there. You see, sometimes in our humanity, the familiar becomes a snare. When I was a kid, I think I saw this in a mad magazine or somewhere, this idea. that you take you a stick, about yay long, you tie a string to the bottom of the stick, you put some breadcrumbs next to the stick, and you take a milk crate, and you prop it up on the stick. The bird comes, and the bird starts feeding on the, milk, on the, on the breadcrumbs, and then you are sitting back there out of sight, and right at the right time, you pull the string, connect it to the stick, the stick goes out, the milk crate goes down, and you have caught yourself a bird. 
But the way the magazine described it was is that you had to get to your spot, and let's say we're going to catch a bird right here. I got to put some crumbs down. I got to put some breadcrumbs down, and I got to let the bird come and start feeding on the breadcrumbs. And, and, and day after day, or moment after moment, I'm feeding that bird so that bird is used to that here's the breadcrumbs. These breadcrumbs are good. Everything is great. And then after you get the bird used to the breadcrumbs, then you introduce the stick. Bird gets used to the stick, and then you introduce the milk crate. The bird gets used to the milk crate, and then you put them all three together. You got you a bird. I never caught a bird. I don't know what I would have done with the bird if I'd had the bird, but I never caught the bird. But the idea was is that you get the bird so used to that which is familiar. And then you catch it in a trap. And sometimes I feel like in my life, maybe not your life, but I feel in my life that I get so caught up in what is familiar and what I am used to and what I know. And then when God says, go and do something I don't know, I'm like, nah. And in that moment, my devotions are tested. My devotions are tested. The people are backed up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army are coming. And God says, I want you to go forward. I want you to go through. I want you to go to the other side. And in somewhere, they have to say, I am willing to take a step of faith and to be obedient to God. And I, will, I know that my devotions are going to be tested because I oftentimes are more devoted to what I'm familiar with, more devoted to what I'm comfortable with, more devoted to what I know. But God says, do you trust me? And so many times, God gets glory when you and I are willing to follow his direction. There's some stories in this room. And there's other stories that I am not familiar with in this room. But there's stories in this room that we could spend the rest of the day talking about how when God gave us direction and we obeyed God, how God showed himself faithful to us. And how the glory of God continues to be on display. And so God says, you know what? In the direction, would you have mapped this up? No. Because what are the people are thinking? The people are thinking we got two options. Either we fight or we submit. Here comes Pharaoh and his army, so we got two options. That's all we got. We either can fight or submit. And yet God comes and Moses says, no, you're not going to fight and you're not going to submit. You're going to walk through the dry ground. So many times, so many times, we fail to see the glory of God because we're not willing to follow the direction of God. Just think about a couple of different examples that we have from the Bible. Think about Noah. If Noah hadn't followed God's direction, we wouldn't have seen God's glory in the life of Noah. If Abraham hadn't followed God's direction, we wouldn't see the glory of God in the life of Abraham. If Gideon hadn't followed God's direction, we wouldn't see the glory of God in the life of Gideon. If Peter, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, if Peter had not followed God's direction, we would not see the glory of God at, at, on display in the life of Peter. If young John had not followed the call and followed God's direction for his life, you wouldn't have the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, even the revelation. You wouldn't have any of that. We wouldn't see the glory of God displayed in the life of the people. And I wonder how many of you in this room that 20 years, 30 years, 50 years from now, people can look at you and say, we don't know much about that person, but we know a whole lot about that person's God. And could that be the testimony of this church? Oh, that they don't know the history of the reputation about the people inside this church. They know the story and they know the glory about the God of this church. 
And he comes in and he says, follow my direction and you will see my glory. And church, I want us to know that when we follow God's direction, glory is, glory is promised. So it's not just his glory that we see in his direction, but we also see his glory in his protection. Go back to verse 19 of chapter 14. It says, and the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. Now what is he talking about there? What, what, what is he referencing there? <coughs> well, it tells us earlier in the passage that during the day that God would lead the people in the direction he would have them to go, he'd lead them through a cloud. So the, the, the angel of God, or the spirit of God, if you will, it would lead the people. So as the people are leaving Egypt, they had never been out of Egypt before. The only two people that ever had been out of Egypt that is recorded in Scripture is Moses and Aaron. Everyone else, the 600,000 other people, had no idea what was beyond Egypt. They had never been out of Egypt. They had never been out of Egypt. Their mom had never been out of Egypt. Their grandma had never been out of Egypt. Their great-grandma had never been out of Egypt. Six or seven generations had never left Egypt. So as they're leaving, you can just imagine, you got 600,000 people, and you got one guy. <laughs> and you can imagine them like, you know where you're going? Are you sure this is the right way? And so God said, I'm just going to make it easier for you. By night, there will be a pillar of fire. And you just follow that pillar of fire, and that will take you where God wants you to go. And during day, there will be a cloud, and it will be the, the direction. It will take you where you need to go. So that is the evidence, the presence, the essence, if you will, of the angel of God. So as the people are sitting there, and their back is up against the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army is coming, and God knows this, and God says, this is what I want you to do in the meantime, because it's going to take a little while to get 600,000 people through the Red Sea. What does God do? God moves in between the people and the threat, moves between the people and the threat to say, I will protect you. So not only we see God's glory in his direction, but we also see God's glory in his protection. In his protection. So he moves. And this is what verse 19 is all about. Verse 19 all the way down through verse 20. You see this evidence where God moves. But I'm going to put a little wrinkle to it. Because I think God does more than just intercede between this party and that party. I think God's doing more there for us. God is revealing to us the danger. You see, sometimes in our circumstance, we can be tempted to think that the Red Sea is the problem. We've got our back against the Red Sea. The enemy is coming. I can't get across this body of water. The Red Sea is the problem. No, the problem is the danger. The problem is the threat. The problem is the world chasing after us. You see, sometimes God is revealing the danger to us, and God is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to show you this is the danger. It's not the Red Sea. It's not the fact that you're on dry ground. It's not the fact that you can't swim. It's not the fact that you don't have boats. The danger is, is what is coming after you, trying to hold you in bondage. Let me just put it to you the way that it comes in my mind. Sin, Satan, the principalities of this earth, they're all chasing us, trying to bondage us in dependency, addiction, all of those things that want to come and pursue after you and I, where you and I just become lethargic, captivated people. And repeatedly through God's word, through the instruction of God's word, through the teaching of God's word, through the studying of God's word, God is constantly revealing the danger to us. And what is the danger? The danger is 
sin. The danger is the idols of this world. The danger is the things that keep us distracted from God. Those are the threats. And so as God moves, God is showing us, I'm protecting you. And it's not just a physical protection, but it's also a spiritual protection. You think about what we know about the land of Egypt. They were full of pagan idol worshipers. And when they're all in Egypt, what are they doing? They are worshiping all the gods of the Egyptians. And God says, hey, my protection is not just physical, but my protection is also spiritual. The biggest threat is not the Red Sea. The biggest threat is the influence of godless people. So he, he gets around them, verse 19. He gets around them and he gives them protection. Not only that, but he also understands that they need to have time to be obedient. So he gives them time for obedience. He reveals the danger and he gives them time for obedience. It reminds us of a passage of Peter where he says, A, a day is a thousand years, is a thousand years is a day to the Lord. Why? God is not slow to reveal his things, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. It's the idea that God continues to give you and I an opportunity to turn and be obedient to him. God is always saying, I'm going to give them an opportunity to follow after me. And so as Moses spreads out his hands, as the sea parts, and as the people have the opportunity then to move down and through the water, God says, I will give them a time to be obedient to me. Go to your kid. Go to the kid's bedroom. And you open the door. And it looks like an F5 came and walked itself all the way through the bedroom. And you go and you look at that kid and you're like, all right, little Johnny, you need to pick up your bedroom. Do you just say, little Johnny, now pick up your bedroom? And then as soon as you say that, then you start disciplining little Johnny because little Johnny hasn't picked up the bedroom? No. You give little Johnny some time. And you say, little Johnny, I want you to pick up your bedroom, and then I'm going to come back. And if your bedroom is not picked up, then the problem will come. But there's always time that is given. I can't tell you of a single example in Scripture where God doesn't give us direction and give us something that he wants us to do, and then doesn't give us time to be obedient. But yet we also see all out throughout Scripture that when God comes back, he is going to hold us accountable for that which he told us to do. So we have a lot of Christians right now that are living through this life and God has told us what to do and we're not doing what God has told us to do and then we expect that God is not going to do anything about it when God comes back. And brothers and sisters, that is not how God has intended this to be. God has given us direction. God has given us protection. And God is giving us time for obedience. And there in the text, God is getting his glory. Because not only is he saying, I want you to cross the Red Sea, but then he's also going to provide all the opportunity for them to be obedient to what God has told them. awesome is it that not only God gives us the way, but then that God provides for the way? How awesome is it that God shows his faithfulness over and over by blessing our obedience? How does he bless obedience here in the text? Well, you get this idea there, verse 19 and verse 20. This is what God is doing. He's protecting them. He's protecting them. But then but then the people are able to go. This is down, uh, picking it back up in verse 21. It says, that, you know, the people went through. This is verse 22. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The water is being a wall to the left and on the right hand. They go. And as they are going, the protection of God is upon them. And as they are moving, here comes Pharaoh and his army. But do they get a hold of the people? No. Do they get near to the people? No. What happens is they are then coming into the Red Sea and God continues to protect them. 
God continues to bless their obedience to follow the direction and follow the plan of God. And yet sometimes I have been guilty of taking credit for God's protection. Sometimes I've been guilty. Maybe you can relate, maybe you can't, but I've been guilty of taking credit for God's provision. Sometimes I've been guilty of assuming that I did it when all I did was follow what God told me to do. And you know, there's a danger in that. I can't speak for you women, and I can't speak for all you men. But for this guy, there's a certain danger when I start looking around me and going, I did that. I earned that. I deserve that. I got that. Whether it's at work, whether it's at home, and I start to think, look at all the things that I have done. And we start to, we, we start to use that same vernacular that, that Nebuchadnezzar did in, in the book of Daniel, where he starts looking around and saying, look at my big kingdom. Look at all the things that I have accomplished. Look how awesome I am. And God goes, no, you didn't do anything. And it's in those moments that we stop seeing the protection of God in our lives that we stop from giving glory to God and start giving glory to ourselves. So here in this text, the only people that are going to get credit is not Moses and not the people. The only person that is going to get credit for what the people are doing, getting through the Red Sea without being hurt, without being harmed. And then as Pharaoh and his army then come into the Red Sea, and then the, they, their, their chariots, they, 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 they talks about the wheels getting logged down, and they start coming into confusion, and then just a mass chaos down in there. The only person that gets glory for any of that is God. And yet so many times we forget God's protection is evident even today. So you see God's glory in our direction. You see God's glory and protection. Then this last one I want you to see, thirdly, is that we see God's glory in His salvation. Verse 26. Listen to how this salvation is pictured. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So all the people, all the people have now made it through the Red Sea. And now you got Pharaoh and his army and everybody there coming down through the Red Sea, pursuing after the Hebrew people. And there, hey, you can imagine the Hebrew people, they, they still don't think they're out of the woods. They still don't think they're saved. They still don't think there's any kind of redemption. Because here they see the Egyptians. And some commentators say that the Egyptian army was the greatest army, the most feared army, the most formidable army on the face of the earth at that time. And here they are. They've got nothing. They have no defenses. They have no protection. They have nothing. And here they see the enemy coming. There is no merit upon themselves. And what does God do? God doesn't just say, all right, I got you in the side. Now take off and see if you can outrun them. I got you in the side. Now set up battle defenses. Oh, I got you in the side. Now you need to do something. No, 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 no. God comes in and says, I am going to bring about salvation. Stretch out your hand over the sea, verse 26, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned in the midst of the sea. And the waters covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the hosts of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, how deep was it when they crossed the Red Sea? Well, obviously deep enough to cover up some people. 
I don't know if it's 10 foot. I don't know if it's 50 foot. I don't know if it's 100 foot. I don't know how deep it was, but it's deep enough that people drowned. Well, how wide was it? Well, it was all wide enough to swallow an entire army. So how did it start to come back? Was it a leak? Was it just a drip? How did it come back in? In my mind, in my sanctified imagination, Moses does this, and the whole water just poosh. And then there were some, if I'm understanding the tracks correctly, there were some Egyptians that were not completely in the water. And it says there in verse 27, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. So my imagination, you've got Pharaoh and his army, and they're coming down in, and here comes the water over the top of them, and there's a few scragglers that God in his providence just picks up and goes, Doop. And that's how my mind works, okay? I'm not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that that's exactly the way it works, but I think they left that out of the Charleston Heston movie, okay? Just like, you know, where the fingers of God are just coming down, picking them up, throwing them in, like, nope, nope. Like you're going to go boil rice, and you're pouring rice into the pot, and a few of the kernels of rice drop out. Grab the rice, you know, you put it back in. That's how I think about it. Why? Because God... Was a mean God? No. Because God was providing the means for his chosen people to be saved. Because God provided the means for his people to be saved. God provided the choice. Hebrew people, Israelites, this is God's direction. Go forward. You make the choice. Will you follow God and will you go forward or will you not? Not only God provided the means, God provided the choice. And then this last one, God provided the mercy. Now this is where I, I don't want to lose you. Because some people will look at this story and they'll go, Ah, see, that's why I can't believe in God. Because God killed the Egyptians, but God didn't kill the Hebrews. Let me ask you. Who got justice and who got mercy? See, we read about elsewhere in Scripture where God is just. And any place you see people transgress and sin against God, the justice of God is perfectly, perfectly justified in punishing that individual. Talks about in Romans 9 where he talks about Jacob and Esau. And there's always this question about how God can be both the just and the justifier. Romans 3 talks about how God satisfies his wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ. But here in this story, there is not a single person that perished or that lived that did not receive, that did not receive unfair justice. I don't know if I said that right. There's not a single person involved in the story that got misjustice. Have the Egyptians rebelled against God? Yes. Have they turned against God? Yes. Have they sinned against God? Yes. So did they receive the justice of God? Yes. That's why the Bible, when it talks about in Romans 3.23, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The New Testament teaches you and I today that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have been separated from God by our sin. And the justice of God on our behalf would require we being sent to hell for an eternity. That is the justice of God. But here in this story, the Israelites, 
God brings them through the water. God brings them out of the water. And it says in verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So you see one group of people that received justice and you see another group of people that received mercy and you and I are sitting here going, well, I don't understand who decides who gets justice and who gets mercy. Well, in this Old Testament setting, God does. And in the New Testament setting, God does. Hold up, preacher. So you're saying that God decides who gets justice and who gets mercy? Yes. So how does God decide who gets mercy? He already has. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him, what does it say? Will not perish, but have eternal life. We see the mercy of God in display and the work of Jesus Christ. So many places in the Old Testament we see these figures of Christ. I, I, talking this last week with a gentleman about how many, in many ways you can see the ark in the Noah's time as being a, a figure of Jesus. You see the Red Sea as being a, a, a type, if you will, of Jesus. This idea that God bringing salvation through these means. And so God shows his salvation to the people. He shows justice and he shows mercy. And you say, well, who, who decided who got justice and who got mercy? God did. So preacher, how do we then, how do we then connect this to our time today? Well, every single one of us in this room deserves justice. But every single one in this room has an opportunity to receive mercy. Not through your merit, not through your worth, because God loves you. Oh, brothers and sisters, we see God's glory on display because it is not because of your worth or because of how awesome you are or because of how smart you are or because of how much money you have or because of your last name or because of something in you. But God shows his glory in, to us and that God's love is undescribable. It is, under, it is unimaginable and God's love is so great for you and Christ's love is so So undeserved. But the only explanation that Spence McConnell has hope of heaven is because of the glory of God. And the only hope that you have in the hope of heaven is because of the glory of God. And you and I have an opportunity to go around and look at the people around us and go, I can smile, and I can be happy, and I can go around, not because of my circumstances, but because of my future. And you and I can go around, and we can be excited, and we can proclaim, and we can be the greatest spokesperson in the world, and be the brightest light in the world, not because of our lives are so awesome, and because we have it all together, but because we have hope. And we have God's glory in us. So then how do we apply this? How, how does this then all fit into the core values we've been trying to pursue as a church, to build families, teach the Bible, be the church. How, how, how does this all then incorporate? Well, when it comes to the family setting, how can we then incorporate this and practice this? In our families, we can be glory givers, not glory getters. I realize that grammatically, 
It is not the best use of the English language, but we can be glory givers and not glory getters. What do you mean, Spence? Well, so much of our life is wrapped around me, 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 me. I want attention. Or so much of our life around is and as adults and our children does, I want little Johnny to be better than all the other little Johnnies. And I want everybody to look and go, oh, boy, little Johnny, that little Johnny, that little Johnny is a prodigy. That little Johnny, oh my gracious, that little Johnny. And we invest our identity in our children. And we're training our children to be glory getters instead of glory givers. And they learn this at home because their parents are not glory givers, they're glory getters. I want the attention, I want the recognition, I want the fame, I want the honor. And in our homes, we need to be teaching our homes to be glory givers, not glory getters. Secondly, when it comes to teaching the Bible, we need to teach people that God is still directing, protecting, and saving. God is still doing these things in our world today. God is still in the business of leading people to salvation. God is still directing in the drafts we should go. God is still protecting us, and God is still saving us. And this last one, you may think it's simple, but it's profound. We need to move forward. We need to move forward. I remember listening to Tony Evans several years ago, and he made the statement about stop looking behind you. You're not going that direction. And I, and I think about that when you look back up in, in verse 15, and it says, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. They knew what was behind them. They knew what was back there. They knew all the things they came from. But God is saying, you're not going that direction. Go forward. And yet so many times in our church life and so many times in our personal lives, you and I get bogged down in always looking behind us and thinking behind us that we stop thinking about where God is leading us. All we do is get stuck on what we have done, what we did do, and what we had luck or not luck in the past. There are so many opportunities in front of us right now as a church. We have opportunities to fit more people in the same amount of space. We have opportunities to expand the ministry so that we can chase darkness and we can reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have opportunities to be a brighter light, a stronger light, a more uh, profound light than we've ever been. We have opportunities all around us. And we're not going to seize or pursue those opportunities if all we're doing is spending our life looking in the mirror. He says, go forward. So, my challenge to you this morning is to ask yourself, who is getting the glory from your life? Is God getting the glory from the story of your life? Is God getting the glory from the direction of your life? Is God getting the glory from the testimony of your life? You can just imagine those Israelite people. They get to the other side. <coughs> They're all huddled up and they're like, whoa, that was crazy. Did you see what just happened? That was nuts. Like the Egyptians, they were all in the dark. We were all in the light. We crossed through this thing. The waters were divided and all of a sudden the waters came back and all these people died and they're back there and they're, they're on the other side and they're all like, whoa, that, that, that was just, that was unexplainable. And here comes the news vans. Big old tires that pop up, the satellite dishes and you have all these people. You know how the news reporter do. They always find the most intelligent looking person to interview. And they walk up and they find someone and they say, excuse me, sir, did you see what happened? And it's like a Ray Stevens song. Yeah, I did. 
And they're sitting there, and they're like, what just happened? And the person tries to tell them, well, you know what? Here's what happened. This guy named Moses, you know, he's kind of the, he's kind of the leader of the gang. You know, he, he spread his hands, and all of a sudden the water opened up. Well, how'd the water do that? Well, I, I don't know. And the, 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 the bed, it was all dry, but you could walk across, and, and nobody got stuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then when the Egyptians came, it was all muddy, and they couldn't get through. Yeah, yeah. Well, how'd that happen? Well, I don't know. And then as you got out of the water, the Egyptians are coming into the water, and then the water all closes up for them. How'd that happen? I don't know. So there's a lot of stuff that happened. Uh, yeah. So how do you explain this? God. How many of your lives share that same testimony? It's just God. Didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, didn't see it. Just did what God told me to do. And God showed himself faithful. Maybe you're here this morning. And that's not the story of your life. You've been chasing a lot of other glories. You've been living for a lot of other glories. You're seeking a lot of other glories. And maybe this morning you just need to say, God, here I am. I'm ready to follow your direction. Maybe there's something else that God has put in your heart. A decision, a repentance, confession, whatever it is. Let's leave here today being people that give glory to God. Bow your heads with me.